Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Founder Hour podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat, and on today's episode, we sit down with Will Ahmed. He's the founder and CEO of Whoop, which has developed next-generation wearable technology for optimizing human performance and health. In the episode, we talk about everything from Will's childhood and his passion for sports, how being a college athlete made him obsessed with continuously monitoring his body and performance, his motivation for wanting to be an entrepreneur, how the idea for Whoop came about, and the early early days of building the company, his thoughts on failure and how to approach the fear of it, how he feels about networking, and much more. We started off our conversation by learning a bit about Will's upbringing. Well, I think growing up, I was always into sports and exercise. I think, you know, as an eight-year-old, I probably played 10 different sports or something, you know, just kind of going from one activity to the next. I was very active. I was an only child uh, or amateur only child. So, you know, being around friends was kind of like always important to me. Being on teams was important to me. Um, I think I was, I mean, I was a pretty good student, uh, but I think I realized at a fairly young age that it was the things that I told myself to do that I always ended up being better at. I was kind of self-driven in that way. If it was something I was excited about, I could have 10x the output. And if it was something I wasn't excited about, I, I could I could be really, really use, useless at it. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, and so I, I went to a boarding school in New Hampshire uh, for high school, a place called St. Paul's. Had a terrific experience there. Uh, and then went on to uh, to Harvard. And at Harvard, I played squash and being a college athlete, uh, my experience as a college athlete led led me to uh, getting kind of obsessed with this idea of continuous measurement and and monitoring the human body. How, uh, tell us about your experience at Harvard. You know, uh, what was that like? Was it uh, an experience that you look back on in a positive light, uh, or you know, was it just I wanted to play squash? Did my four years? And, you know, on to the next thing. It was enormously positive. I mean, I really, I really loved the school. I mean, I'm grateful for all the schools I've, I've gone to. Uh, Harvard is special in large part because of the people that go to Harvard. I mean, it's a really unique group of people. And it's also an age, you know, 18 to 22 or so, where you're still kind of figuring out who you are and what you want to be and what you're interested in. And so it's just, I think it's an important time in anyone's life to be surrounded by people who are energetic and ambitious and, you know, kind of curious for the world. And I, uh, I certainly gravitated to a lot of athletes because I was, I was playing, you know, I was a college athlete and I think athletes have a habit of spending time together. But, but, you know, about halfway through my time at Harvard, I, I found myself getting really interested in physiology because I didn't feel like I knew what I was doing to my body while I was training. And in fact, I felt like the three or four hours that I spent training was like the least, uh, ed, you know, at least educational time that I spent in school. It was like, it didn't make any real sense. It seemed kind of random. And that's not because of bad coaching. It just seemed that like, shouldn't we know how fit you are? Shouldn't we know that if you're peaking, shouldn't we know if you're run down, 
you know, should there, shouldn't there be a lot more to measure? That's what I kept coming back to. I was someone who used to overtrain as an athlete. And so I got interested in how I personally could prevent overtraining. And that led me to reading something like 500 medical papers while I was in school. And I ended up writing a paper myself uh, around physiology. And again, this goes back to something I realized quite young, which is that the things that I got interested in, I could have this sort of enormous output. And the things that I wasn't interested in, you know, I, I was pretty much useless at. Yeah. It's always funny because like you might be studying something in school and that's like your major, um, but you, you become interested in something else and that consumes most of your energy expenditure and just like your time. But I, I don't know if that was the case for you because I, I think I saw that you had studied um, government and economics, right? That was your major? Exactly. And uh, I guess- Did you think like, was, the, was there like a plan to go to law school or like anything else at the time? Or did you did you see yourself being in this sort of space in terms of like health and wellness and fitness and that kind of stuff? You know, I didn't, I didn't know what I was going to do, uh, especially at age like 18 or 19 or 20. I, I studied government and economics because I found it interesting. And in a lot of ways, that's what a liberal arts education is all about. I, I gravitated to physiology in school because I realized I was much more interested in that even than, than government and economics. I think also my interest in technology uh, at a young age influenced founding whoop you know i at a very young age bought like i saved up money to buy the first palm pilot that could get on the internet i remember it had this big antenna cord and i remember and, those yeah i think it was a palm pilot four and I, I was fascinated by it and i remember buying the first ipod in like my seventh grade class and thinking that was the coolest thing and and Generally speaking, I, I felt by the age of, I don't know, 18 or 20 years old, that it was obvious that computers were going from being on your desk to on your lap to in your pocket to on your body to eventually in your body. That it wasn't a question of, of if, it was a question of when. That was just inevitable to me. And the mm -hmm. combination, I think, of believing that really strongly and recognizing these physiological indicators uh, that I thought should be measured and measured continuously, that combination gave me the confidence to uh, start a company. So I think uh, after you graduated, you ended up going and working a couple places. Um, throughout that time, like, were you, did it, was it always on your mind, like, I'm going to become an entrepreneur someday, I'm going to start my own business? Or did that come sort of later um, in your career or life? Well, Whoop was the first job I ever first full-time job I ever had. I mean, I worked as a caddy in the summers. And then, you know, when I was, after my freshman year, I worked for a hedge fund. After my sophomore year, I worked for an investment bank. And after my junior year, I worked for a private equity firm. So I certainly flirted with finance, but those were, you know, eight-week internships. And I like to tell young people that internships are a good way to figure out what you may not want to do. 100%. Um, and so at least for me, it, it, and I worked at great places. I really respected the people I worked for, but it showed me that that wasn't what I wanted to do. And, yeah. uh, you know, I didn't want to be my boss's boss's boss or whatever. Right. right? Like, uh, and that, that's also a good gut check if you're an ambitious person. Well, coming out of college, a lot of people, uh, a lot of students don't really have 
the luxury of not taking a job, um, you know, and so a lot of times, even those folks that want to become entrepreneurs delay, you know, that entrepreneurial journey so that they're a little bit more financially secure. Was that ever a worry for you or were you so certain that Whoop was going to work from the get-go that taking a job wasn't even a consideration? Well, I certainly felt insecure that I wasn't uh, kind of following this path of finance or consulting or some of these sort of traditional processes that are that are um, put put in front of you. Uh, and certainly they attract a lot of Harvard students because Harvard students in themselves are good at winning processes. Part of how they ended up getting into Harvard, right? You're kind of competitive and you're good at kind of winning these processes. And so I remember feeling really insecure my senior year about the fact that I wanted to start a company and not go, you know, make six figures out of college at some at some investment bank. And the key was being able to raise capital mm-hmm. By, by the time I graduated, um, I remember I raised about $300,000 to start the company from <clears throat> friends, family, a couple former bosses. Uh, and what was and, the idea you were pitching to them? The idea was that we were going to build a, uh, a whole system for measuring the human body. And in fact, the paper I wrote at Harvard was titled The Feedback Tool. Measuring intensity, recovery, and sleep. And the amazing thing is actually today, the three main things that Whoop measures are strain, recovery, and sleep. Yeah. And a lot of how we describe Whoop today is this idea of being a, a feedback tool. It's a 24-7 coach really designed to help you understand your body. So the vision for Whoop was really a straight line. I mean, it's kind of amazing to think that, but I wrote that paper probably close to 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it's been a pretty straight line. I know you mentioned being like super um, interested in this area and reading all these papers about it and just kind of gaining all this knowledge. Did you have, you know, like a clear vision of how this thing would work and how you would go about building it? Or did you just know that, hey, there must be a market for this? Um, it's something that I want my, for myself. And I think that people would want it too. And, um, I'll just figure it out along the way. Or like, were you already pretty clear on like what the final product or process would look like? I certainly didn't know how the technology would function, but I believed like, if we just go back in time for a second, so 2010, 2011, 2012, what was in the market for measuring your body? There was a chest strap. So a heart rate monitor, about 10 million of those were sold a year. Ridiculous, you know, uh, you have to wear it around your chest. You have to like spit on it. The stuff that it connected to didn't make any sense. If you were a woman, obviously there's all kinds of reasons why that would be incredibly uncomfortable. But the data was really interesting. So I started wearing a chest strap close to 24-7, which was a somewhat painful thing to do. But I was really interested in what the data would produce just looking at that all the time. And then, uh, you know, there was a PSG machine, which was considered and still is considered the gold standard for measuring sleep, but it required all these different nodes and things to put on your body. And then there was the electrocardiogram machine. And this was probably the thing I was most fascinated with in research. Heart rate variability is this fascinating lens into your autonomic nervous system. 
And it's this incredibly powerful statistic, which in medical literature was being used all the way back in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, Some of the best cyclists in the world, some of the best Olympic power lifters, they would measure their heart rate variability in the morning to determine how prepared their body was. And I was like, well, that's so interesting. And then sure enough, the CIA was using it to do lie detection tests. Uh, Cardiologists were using it to predict heart failure. And I was thinking to myself, like, wow, what an important statistic. Why isn't everyone measuring this? And uh, the reality was it was the the technology. And, you know, whenever you see a technology that looks really antiquated and has looked the same for, you know, decades, there's a good chance you can disrupt it. I mean, I didn't know how I was going to disrupt it, but my gut was like, the electrocardiogram machine can get a lot smaller. The polar chest strap's going to go away. You're going to be able to measure sleep in a simpler way, right? Mm-hmm. And so that was just the strong belief. And then it certainly took years figuring out how do we could get that accuracy and certainly building a great team too. Yeah. And I can't remember, I mean, uh, around that time, if like Fitbit and those guys were out already, um, but did, like, did you ever wonder you know, um, or how big they were. Um, did you ever wonder like, you know, I'm going to go and create this whole thing, but, um, you know, how do, what if someone else that is already in the market could just sort of pivot to this if, if there's any traction here and they've, they've already built an audience and whatnot. And I know ever since then, like the Ura ring and all these like different wearables have come into the market. But like at the time, did you have any thought in your mind of, you know, I, I can go and just do all this work and spend all this money and do all this R&D and build this thing and kind of do all the quote unquote like dirty work. And then these people that are in incumbents in the industry can just sort of introduce this thing already and people have it, you know, let's say whoever has a Fitbit or whatever at home. Um, did you, th- did that ever cross your mind or were you like certain that whatever you were building, you had some sort of core advantage over others? I certainly felt that the way it all needed to function, like what the end state was, I felt like I had a better handle on that than anything that was in the market or would come into the market. And look, I mean, some of this is the magic of being naive when you start a company too and being a little ignorant, you know, the the number of people that I respect that told me, uh, how crazy I was for doing this is a, quite a long list. I mean, and, and smart people, mind you. And, um, you know, Nike had the fuel band. Fitbit became a billion-dollar company. Jawbone became a billion-dollar company and then went bankrupt. There were startups like Basis and um, Intel entered the space. Google sort of entered the space but exited it. Adidas had products. Under Armour had products, Um, you know, Philips had products. I mean, virtually every big technology company or sports apparel brand has tried to play in this space. So you, you have to kind of look yourself in the mirror and ask yourself, well, what are you doing that's different? And a lot of it comes back to sort of the, the end state, the end state that we believed was that we would be able to provide insights that could actually change behavior and improve health and that it would be a, effectively a coach for your body right 
Will, I'm curious, you know, as let me just add to that. And for, fortunately, that was such an ambitious vision that executing against it became a differentiator. Where other products have come and, in my opinion, gone is they, they raced to market quickly. They thought the sooner we get something out the door, the better. And so they introduced lower levels of technology, things that maybe from 30,000 feet looked identical to, to a whoop. But when you actually look under the hood and you realize that end state, which is the feedback loop, which is the insights, it's a very different thing. Will, I'm curious, you know, at 22 years old or so, what gave you the confidence to think that this was going to be a successful company? I understand that you know there was a need, there was these antiquated machinery that you can you know obviously innovate. But what made you so special? Why was Will Ahmed the one to make this into a successful company? Well, I had an inner belief. I mean, that's there's no question. I believed. Uh, I believed in in. The idea. I believed in myself. I believed in the research that I had done. I think I was prepared. I mean, I did a lot. I, I spent two or three years thinking about it almost every day. And 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 part of it, by the way, was I didn't have a choice. It, you know, it was the only thing I was thinking about. I, you know, and and so sometimes you get pulled into things too, right? And for me, that was that was every bit the case. Um, and look, I, I met two great co-founders by the time I graduated and got them involved in the business, John Capitolupo, Aurelian Nikolai. John was deeply technical mathematically. Aurelian was a very good mechanical engineer. Both of them are still with the business today, all these years later. And, uh, and so, you know, I felt like we had complementary skills. I felt like there was a vision for what we needed to build. And... Um, and I just believed so much in the, the future, the promise of it. And, you know, I think when, when it's very like over the course of your life, right, you have these moments in time where something seems incredibly obvious to you. And maybe it seems obvious to other people, but maybe it doesn't. And those moments in time are quite important. And you kind of have to build up a, you know, a check, you know, sort of like a checklist over time of, well, how did those moments go? And so I had built up a checklist in my mind of that when I, when I felt that certain about something, I had to do it. And just to piggyback off of that, you know, anytime, anytime, you know, let's say like you're just kind of getting started and uh, perhaps like you mentioned, you had to go raise out, go raise money and you're sort of pitching to investors, whether they're institutional venture capitalists or angel investors or friends and family, you know, something that's in kind of putting yourself in their shoes, something that's probably going through their mind is why is this like, why is this person the perfect person to go out and build this company? And why should we give this person, you know, the money to go out and do it? And so in that case, like how were you positioning yourself perhaps to the people that you're raising money from to, to gain their trust and to, to be able to tell them, Hey, like I am the, even like, even though, you know, deep down that you're thinking about this constantly and you've done your research and all that stuff, but you, you, you know, you're a young guy, you don't know, you don't have much to show for yourself in terms of like experience in this industry at the time. How were you positioning yourself in those conversations? Well, I think you can really only, you know, be be as authentic as possible. 
And the reality is most people tell you you're going to fail and it's not going to work out. And like that was hard, frankly. The first couple of years of Whoop were hard because I was so much of my identity, I think, was tied up in starting the company. And so if things weren't going well for the company, it felt like things weren't going well for me. And I remember taking rejection personally. And and even to this day, I can remember almost everyone who's rejected me, which is an incredibly long list. And it's sort of a weird thing that you remember those those conversations. But, um, I, you know, I think I think ultimately you, you make your case, you present it and you keep moving. You know, in the time that it takes for you to convince someone who's on the fence, you can meet someone new and get them over over the line. And uh, and that's probably one of the biggest secrets to fundraising in general is just keep going. Willie, when you talk about, you know, having this moment in time where you're so certain about something and so sure that, you know, the world needs it or people need or need it or whatever the case may be, you know, and again, I'm just playing devil's advocate here, but, you know, had Whoop not worked out, right, a decade later, right? If you look back and said, okay, you know, I was so sure that it was going to work out, but it didn't, you know, what would have been the reason for that? Or were you just relentless in making sure it was a success and failure was absolutely not an option for you? Well, I, I, I was certainly relentless and I certainly didn't believe failure was an option. Having said that, we almost failed half a dozen times. And in fact, even like seven or eight years in, we almost failed. And and I mean that literally, like the company almost went bankrupt. Um, but, you know, here we are today, the business is valued over a billion dollars. And so I've just seen how how little of a difference it is between massive success and failure. And so I think as a general rule, you really want to eliminate failure from your vocabulary. Uh, at least that, that's that's how I've tried to approach it. The thing I'll say, though, is that young people especially, and this was certainly the case for me, aren't great at framing risk. You, When you think about starting something, you think about, well, what's the probability of this thing succeeding? And that's your risk assessment. What you lose in that process is, well, wh- what's the potential for the individual or even for the rest of the team that I bring along with me? Right. And- if Whoop had failed two years ago, it still would have been the best decision of my life because of how much I would have learned about myself and how much further along I got in my career um, because of, of being under that gun for so long and being under that spotlight and, and like just the enormous amount that you are forced to learn in real transparency, your strengths, your right. weaknesses, the things you need to improve. It's kind of like, you know, I get what you're saying in terms of not having failure as part of your vocabulary as an entrepreneur, but I think it's important to have that and label it as what it is, where it's like failure is is actually going to be the most likely outcome. But if that's going to dissuade you from doing it, then, and if you're afraid of failing, then it's probably best you don't do it because like, like you said, to your point on, you know, even if you had, if it, even if it had failed along the way, all these different times, the fact that you wanted to do it so badly overpowered and outweighed the possibility of failure and in that case it's like knowing how you know like the likelihood of you know how high the likelihood of failure is if you're still willing to do it for that slight possibility that it becomes a massive success 
then it's kind of like no regrets. You know, it's like, it's like, I'd rather have done it and failed rather than not have done it at all. Right. And so like having that mindset, I think is important. Um, but it's like, I, you know, oftentimes there are many people who start businesses and are oblivious to the, to the fact that it's very likely that you will fail, um, you know, nine out of 10 businesses or whatever, like fail. And that, that could be for many different reasons. So I think that, you know, knowing it and facing it is more important than not thinking about it at all, that it's like a possibility. Cause then you're like going to be in for a rude awakening in a way. Um, so anyways, that's just my thoughts there, but well, I don't know I if think, anyone else. Yeah. I, I think there's, I think, look, I think there's a lot of different ways to approach failure. I think a fear of failure is probably the most important thing to remove as a barrier. Right. And once people get over a fear of failure, they're able to do really extraordinary things. Um, but I do think that even just the framework for how you approach the the daily or the weekly failures that are building a business is really important. And I, I've tried to take almost such a positive approach to things that don't work that I, again, I, I mean it quite literally, like I, failure really isn't in my vocabulary. I look at it as, oh, we just identified another way um, to do, to, to not, like, we just identified a way that this doesn't work. Or we just identified someone, yeah, we just identified someone who's, you know, not the right member for the team, ultimately. Right. And, and again, like, one of the ways you could look at it is, like, failure would have been if you had this really deep passion and reason for, for you know, and purpose for doing this, and you didn't pursue it for whatever reason. Like, if anything, that would have been a failure. Anything along the way, any obstacle you face is just a part of the process that's inevitable. Like if you're building anything, especially something that's like never been built before and you're doing it from scratch and you're not a copycat and whatnot, then those things are just like kind of the natural obstacles you're going to have to go through and just failure would have been if you didn't even do it, right? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, yeah. Well, let's talk about, you know, Whoop and what it is and obviously, you know, we'll go into what it's become. Uh, but you start this out in 2012 when you graduated Harvard uh, with an idea, with a problem that you want to solve. Uh, what was Whoop early on? What, what did the product look like? What was it capable of doing? Tell us about how that all came together. The vision for the pot, p- product was always to build um, – you know, a fully integrated system. So hardware, software, analytics that could tell you how to change behavior and improve health. And today whoop includes a wearable, right? I'm wearing it on my wrist right now. You can wear it on your upper arm. It's a small sensor. It's mostly material, the material you can swap in and out and you wear it on your body 24 seven. And it's giving you really the most accurate information for measuring your body. And we summarize a lot of data in terms of strain and recovery and sleep. You know, you can think of strain as the intensity of workouts or your overall day. You can think of recovery as how prepared your body is really to take on strain. So those two things pair together nicely, right? If you have a high recovery, Whoop tells you to take on a lot of strain. If you have a low recovery, Whoop tells you to take on less strain. I mean, in many ways, Whoop is the first fitness product to tell you not to exercise, but to tell you to rest more. And then we do a lot of analysis around sleep and we tell you when to go to bed and when to wake up and what percentage of your sleep is 
quality sleep, like REM and slow wave sleep, and how you can get more of it. And so there's these sort of daily, there's a daily cycle of recovery leading to strain and strain determining your sleep need and your sleep then determining your next recovery. So that's like on a cycle, right? And then on top of that, there's, there's analysis that's happening on a weekly and monthly basis that's looking at all these different behaviors in your life and decisions that you're making and things that you're inputting into Whoop and is trying to tell you what are the two or three things that you can change uh, to be optimal and to be the best version of yourself. And I would say, that, again, the single biggest difference between Whoop and any product on the market is that we've proven to be able to change people's behavior and improve their health. If you've been on Whoop for a year, you have a lower resting heart rate, you have a higher heart rate variability, you're getting more sleep, and it's at a significantly higher quality. That's like fairly life-changing, actually. And so yeah. uh, that's you know what we do in day in and day out. And as I understand it, um, you guys give the wristband, the one that you're wearing, for free, and then the 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 part where the consumer pays is like the monthly subscription, kind of like the Square model, if you will, or like one of those kind of where you just kind of get the piece of hardware, and then the payment is on a monthly basis. Is that kind of the way it works? Yeah, you can pay anywhere from eighteen to thirty dollars a month, and uh, the hardware is completely free and included. And the business model relies on us delivering value to you every day, every week, every month. And if we don't, you should cancel. You know, mm-hmm. that's the that's kind of the beauty of the business model. And how did that decision come about? And was that something that you started doing from the get go, like when you launched, you know, giving the piece of hardware for free? Because I, you know, I, I know you mentioned initially you had to raise, you know, three hundred thousand dollars. Did that pretty much all go towards manufacturing? or most of it towards manufacturing the hardware. Um, also, like obviously, this, there's a software component where you know the, the programming and everything, but was that kind of a thing that you did from the beginning, and why did you decide to do that? Well, I mean, the 300000 we went through pretty quickly. Um, and and you know today, we, we've raised about $200 million in capital. So it, it was certainly, it took a lot of capital to build this business. I would say it probably took about, 50 million in capital to build the product that I ultimately wanted to build and to take it to the market in a, um, in a really strong business model. So in terms of what did it cost to get to that, it was probably $50 million. And, and, um, the business model, which you just touched on ended up being an important piece of that puzzle because we needed to find the right way for people to be able to sign up for Whoop and see how it was different and actually feel how it was different uh, to really help differentiate us. And, um, and so that's where we came up with this business model where you can literally sign up for Whoop today for $30. And we're going to send you an incredibly sophisticated piece of hardware for free in the mail to go with that. And over the next number of months, we're going to convince you that you should keep paying that for the rest of your life. And so it, it's a pretty unique business model. I think when you, when you start a company, you certainly don't know all the things you're going to innovate on. And that was an area that I did not expect to have to innovate. You know, I expected that the technology would be the innovation, not necessarily the business model. But sure enough, we had to really invent our own business model because so much of what our value proposition was, was to evolve with you over time. 
and prove that we're a product that's not just a one-time shot, like a watch or something, but it's a, it's a, it's a tool that's going to be, you're going to want to use day over day over day. Yeah. And as a first time founder, like, you know, kind of you're, you're having to learn all this by doing, were, were there any people that you were sort of relying on as like for mentorship or advice? And who were these people? Like, how did you meet them and who were they? Well, I mean, over time, uh, I, I was fortunate to just get to build a, an interesting network of, of people and many of which were investors in the company, uh, you know, certainly partners in the business, key executives in the business. We talked about these things for hours at a time, especially this business model decision. Because the other challenge with the business model decision is that you go from not making much money to really losing a lot of money, right? We, went, we switched from getting a lot of money up front to a business model that was dependent on people staying with us for a long time in an industry that was plagued because people didn't stay with products for a long time, right? So you can imagine what a big bet that was. And, uh, and so, yeah, it was, it was a big, it was a big decision and, and I'm sort of like, uh, having a little bit of PTSD thinking about that decision, but <laughs> sorry to put you through that again. <laughs> no, well, as the company was growing, was yeah. as the company was growing, uh, I assume there were a lot more challenges that, uh, you know, came up, um, you know, talk to us a little bit about your leadership style and how you know you were able to lead this company and uh you know how you stayed up to date with you know what was going on out in the world and in technology and you know just give us a little rundown of how the the leadership side of uh running a business like this the most important thing i've found in trying to grow as a, an entrepreneur and as a ceo is that you have to you have to compare yourself to yourself. You have to keep focusing on how you're evolving and how you're improving. And you need to keep that completely independent from the business because the business might be going up and you might be going sideways. The business might be going down, but you're learning resilience, right? Like you need to be um, really in control of, of your own emotions and yourself. And I bring all of this up because when I was, when I would say, I don't know, 24 at that point we had probably raised 15 million dollars you know the we it had taken us too long to get to market um we, we were missing deadlines uh the company was maybe 20 people or 30 people and i felt like i was really failing and i kind of got to this sort of breaking point where i realized i needed to start learning some things to be able to control my mindset and i I ended up getting really into meditation mm -hmm. and I learned transcendental meditation. And that was one of, you know, sort of a number of things that I would now consider in my toolbox. And I've been doing transcendental meditation every day since 2014. And so that was one thing that really helped change my life and certainly made me a better, a better leader or manager because it helped me become more even keel. I realized that I was, again, back to separate yourself from the company. I was just riding the waves of the company's success or failures. You know, if things were going well, I was on a high. If things were going poorly, I was on a low. And that you can't, you can't be on an emotional roller coaster if you're trying to manage people in a company, right? 
and you know all the different stakeholders that go with that. And so for me, it was learning how to become balanced and even keel and recognizing if something great's happened, well, something bad might be around the corner. And if something poorly happens, something great's coming next, you know, just, just keeping that sort of steady hand, if you will. And combination of meditation and recognizing this need for balance became very important in, in my leadership style. Um, and it's fascinating, you know, if you can if you can really focus on yourself in certain ways and how you're growing and be very, pretty introspective about that, um, you know, today Whoop is 300 and I don't know, 60, 70 people. And I'm so much more comfortable running the company right now with way more responsibility, frankly, than I was, you know, five years ago, much smaller business, much lower responsibilities. So again, it's all relative to how you are growing into it. At least that's how I've felt. Mm-hmm. And Will, you know, I know, I know you've obviously, you know, as this, you know, founder of this company, you've had on or taken on a lot of roles on, uh, you know, when it comes to, I'm curious to raising money, right? Um, is that something that you were good at? Uh, for those that are out there listening, you know, we have a lot of listeners who are either first time founders themselves or our founders in later stages and are continuously raising money. Tell us a little bit about, you know, that process and your overall thoughts on, you know, working with investors. I think alignment is very important with investors. You know, raising money from someone is like getting married, but you can't get divorced. You know, they're on your cap table forever. And so you want to make sure that you've got really, you know, you want to make sure you've got great alignment with, with any investor who gives you money. And I actually remember in the early days turning some capital away because they the capital had more of a vision for Whoop in the medical space versus Whoop to follow this arc. The, the, really, it's the arc we've followed, but we always wanted to start with pro sports and over time make our, make our way to health. And that's an arc that we've now followed. But for a lot of people, that wasn't the right arc in their opinion. And so you want to have alignment. That's the first thing that comes to mind. You also, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm good at raising capital. I've certainly raised a good amount of capital at this point. I think to the extent that someone would say I'm good at raising capital, it's because I, I project what's to come. You know, you, you can paint a picture of what, where you're going because where you're going is always going to be more exciting than where you are today. And, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of, investors especially venture capitalists are dreamers themselves and they want to be told what the future looks like and they want to give money to people who want to create that future so to to the extent that i've had success raising capital i would say that it's been uh, a focus on on painting a vision yeah. So on the topic of like what the future looks like, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on just this industry as a whole. Like we talked about earlier, there are a bunch of different wearable companies. Do you see like just consolidation across the board and kind of these big name brands like Apple and Google and stuff kind of just buying everyone out and staying at the top of their game? And um, that's kind of the trajectory of it. And then, you know, also in parallel, like how do you see the future of Whoop fitting in with whatever future you see in terms of the industry? Yeah, I mean, I, I won't speak for other wearables, um, but I'll, I'll speak for Whoop in the sense that if you look at just what are the fundamental problems that need to be solved, a, a lot of it comes back to how human beings think about 
their health, and their bodies. COVID-19, one positive to come from COVID-19, is that it's definitely accelerated the rate at which people care about their health. And it's also made people recognize something that we've long believed at WHOOP, which is that feelings are overrated. There's this idea that you can feel everything. But in fact, there are physiological indicators that may be demonstrating something that you can't feel at all. I mean, hell, that's the problem with COVID-19. You can be asymptomatic carrier. You've got a virus that you can give to someone that can really affect them, maybe kill them, and you can't feel it's in your body. The truth is that there are physiological indicators to be able to measure things like that. And uh, respiratory rate, as just a complete aside, is something that WHOOP measures that we've been able to show has incredible predictive power for COVID-19. We've done peer-reviewed research on this. It's now published in medical journals. We worked with Cleveland Clinic, CQU. So anyone listening to this, I would just encourage you to look at respiratory rate uh, in relation to COVID-19. And I just bring that up as an example because I think it speaks to where things are going. You know, the future of health is not steps. The future of health is is not having a randomly scheduled doctor's appointment uh, on just some random day of the year. The future of health is is getting a notification that you need to go see your doctor in the next fifteen minutes. Hmm. You know, it's it's helping society learn the benefits of sleep quality. Mind you, I didn't just say sleeping more because a lot of people don't have time. But there are certain things you can just shift to improve sleep quality. And if you improve sleep quality, you can dramatically improve productivity and happiness. And there's a million studies to demonstrate that. And on that note, I know the mission for for WHOOP is unlocking human performance. Um, based on the data that you've seen kind of just throughout this whole journey um, and you know what you know to be true, besides kind of obviously you mentioned sleep being one of the indicators, but what are some things that kind of really stand out in terms of how everyone in the world kind of no matter what circumstance you're under obviously some certain people are in harder circumstances than others or just tougher circumstances but like what can people do to really um besides buying a whoop uh do to like really help them um you know kind of just really unlock and reach like a peak performance level and ultimately just kind of keep keep uh working towards that well i i think sleep is probably the most common area uh of improvement so if you ask someone how much sleep did you get last night and they don't measure their sleep they'll say i went to bed at 11 and i woke up at six so i i got seven hours of sleep now the reality is actually they just spent seven hours in bed and within that seven hours they spent time awake in light sleep in slow wave sleep and in REM sleep light and awake are practically useless you get no benefits from them REM and slow wave are enormously beneficial. REM is when your body is repairing cognitively. Your mind's repairing cognitively. And that's when you're dreaming. So if you're someone who can't remember their dreams or it doesn't dream, you're probably not getting enough REM sleep. Slow wave sleep is when your body produces about 95% of its human growth hormone. So the idea that you get stronger in the gym is false, right? That's actually you're breaking your muscles down. You get stronger doing slow wave sleep, repairing those muscles. So injury, um, muscle care, all of these things are, are boosted from slow wave sleep. 
you know, young people need a lot of slow wave sleep so they can grow. So REM and slow wave are enormously important periods. Now let's go back to the person who spent seven hours in bed. Seven hours in bed, we have people who can get, you know, 30 minutes of REM and slow wave, spending seven hours in bed. That's tiny. On the flip side, we have people who can get five hours and 45 minutes of REM and slow wave, spending seven hours in bed. Now notice, we didn't change how much time you allocated to sleep, because that's the most common complaint that people have about sleep. Well, I just didn't have time, or, you know, I'm, I'm so busy, you know, I'm focused on other things. But the reality is you can shift a few things to dramatically increase the amount of time that you're getting of REM and slow wave. And, and would those two people like feel any different the next day, the next morning, or could you feel this exact same way, even though you got significantly less REM sleep and you just don't know that it's affecting you negatively or hurting your overall well-being? Well, the difference between 30 minutes and 545 that I just described is so profound that there's no question you would feel that difference. Um, the, the thing is, most people who are on the low end of that spectrum who aren't measuring their sleep are kind of always in that state. So they're not necessarily recognizing the difference between good sleep and bad sleep. They're just kind of always in that like empty space. And we talked about feelings being overrated. You know, it's, a very, it's very hard to know how much REM sleep did I get last night, right? But that's where measurement comes in. And, and you can only really manage what you measure. So let's think about a few things to your question of how you can be more optimal. Well, one way to improve REM and slow wave sleep is to sleep more consistently. So try to go to bed and wake up at the same time. Independent from how long you spend in bed, going to bed and waking up at very similar times every night increases your REM and slow wave sleep, boosts recovery, higher heart rate variability, lower resting heart rate. Another one is your bedroom environment. So most people sleep in a bedroom that's a little too warm. I like mine to be around 65 degrees Fahrenheit, which is a little cold. Uh, I wish my wife would allow that. Yeah, that's a challenge. You got to get your partner to come along with you. Uh, Most people sleep in a bedroom that's too bright. So you want to have it be as dark as possible. If you're someone who travels a lot, maybe wear an eye mask to bed. You want to try to avoid eating within three hours of going to bed. That's another big one. People eating too close to bed or snacking. That can really screw up your sleep. Even things that you do er way earlier in the day. Mindfulness, just breathing techniques, even in the afternoon, can have an effect on how you sleep 8, 10, 12 hours later. Uh, Drinking caffeine in the afternoon can meaningfully disrupt negatively impact your sleep later that night now some of these things that we're touching on are highly personal it may turn out that you're someone who can drink caffeine at 5 p.m and it doesn't affect your sleep it may turn out you're someone who can eat you know two hours before bed and it doesn't affect your sleep but you're in the minority okay and the interesting thing is figuring out what is this little recipe for you that can make you more optimal and mind you we haven't even talked about diets we haven't talked about supplements we haven't even talked about training right but once you start adding all these things up You just have such a great appreciation for how many decisions you're making in your life that actually affect your performance and how little of it you actually measure. Yeah, for the record, you know, I had 
hour and 37 minutes of REM sleep last night. Um, I'm not sure if that's good or bad. Um, that is, that's good. Oh. REM sleep, yeah. Okay. That's good. Well, well, how much slow wave did you get? Is that like light or deep sleep? I, I take it you're not using Whoop. I'm not. I'm not. Well, so I'm going <laughs> to question then how accurate any of it you're saying is. There you but, go. There you go. I whatever. like it. I like it's, it. a good, it's a good first step, though. You, you need to be measuring something to make you think exactly. about it. I got I to work myself up. Um, yeah. yeah, it's it's funny because like you know, there's so many things that we kind of look externally as to how can we become you know just a better version of ourselves. Like you mentioned, supplements and all these things, which you know they have their part in the process too. But it's so it's so interesting that you, like there's so many things that are just right in our circle, like right in our up our alley that we don't measure. Like for example, like you said, sleep or just how much water we consume on a daily basis and things that we just have a lot of control over, a lot more control over than perhaps other things. So. Um, yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up. But yeah, Will, Gosh, you had a question. Yeah, Will, I know I, I remember reading something completely different than, you know, Whoop, uh, about networking that you had a very uh, interesting take on networking in general. Why don't you tell us what that take is and why, why you think that's the case? It's funny. This gets brought up a lot. I feel like I had a hot, uh, like a hot mic. Or hot something. take. I had a hot take on networking. Um, I've I've definitely said in the past that networking's overrated or a waste of time. Yep. And what I meant by that is that networking for the sake of networking, I think right. ends up being a waste of time. If you're if if you're really passionate about something and you naturally go about trying to uncover it, that could be a career path, that could be an industry, that could be a, you know, really anything. What happens is in the process of uncovering this thing that you're passionate about, you meet interesting people and you talk about that thing. And so it gives you a very natural way to get to know one another. And all of a sudden, you realize that you've built an organic relationship with someone that you otherwise may not have. Right. And, and, you know, that's just been my experience. I feel like today I have a very interesting network. That ranges from, you know, professional athletes who I call friends to, you know, well-known cardiologists, doctors, professors, you name it. And I think if I had just tried to network with them, I, I don't, you know, I don't know that anything meaningful would have come of it. But right, because right, we've all we've all been to those like events where everyone's just sort of making small talk and they consider that networking and you know they exchange business cards or whatever it is and it's like you know I just you know grew my network by fifteen people but did you really like what on what like what, where's the substance there you know it's just like you made some small talk and that was yeah, that was yeah. it yeah I, I think that's a profound waste of time yeah for yeah, sure I mean I, agree with that. I think a lot of people frankly don't well not a lot of people but I think a lot some people aren't naturally just you know gifted when it comes to you know speaking to other people i think they get a little nervous etc but i do think that you know if those same people went and approached other people with a specific purpose in mind right not not to be salesy right you know i'm a i'm an insurance broker and uh you know wanted to ask if you have you know life insurance right that's that's probably not a good way either but you know just being very meaningful in your approach and you know whether you're an entrepreneur and i think there's a great lesson for founders as well um, and the reason I ask is because I think a lot of founders should continue networking, even when they have launched a business or they're growing their business, because <clears throat> you never know when your next 
uh, fundraising opportunity is going to be or where it's going to come from or, you know, what customer that person can help you get or what partnership they can help introduce you to. And I think it's important for founders to network, but for more so to continue building and maintaining relationships that they have. I think that's, that's key. Maybe the best way to frame it is that the, the purpose of, of, the purpose of the conversation needs to needs to ha- it needs to have some substance, right. you know. It can't be just meeting someone for the sake of sake of meeting them, right. Right, right? And and so even to your point about founders needing to sort of stay up to speed with investors, <clears throat> I think in the context of them like really pitching what they're doing or giving a you know authentic update on what they're doing, Sure, but the, I don't. You know, I don't think they're going to get much value out of listening to an investor speak at a conference because, right? Yeah, yeah, that's not what I'm saying. And, 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 and it, it makes me think about some of these. You know, like for example, a lot of founders who are like constantly just on like Twitter or like in Clubhouse now, which is like the new new app that everyone's on, and like different places where like they're spending just obscene amount of time on the on these apps trying to network with people. Where if you were to spend that energy on the thing that you're actually working on. If if you truly feel like it's gonna you know be world changing for you and for other people, then those conversations and those relationships will kind of naturally come about because you'll be providing some sort of value and substance through your conversations or interactions. And I think that's kind of what you're saying, and I and I completely agree with that. Yeah, I think that I think that's right. And a lot of these things also come back to what do you want, right? You know, as as do most things in life. Like, but. Um, you know, if you want to start a business, like if you want to create something from scratch, uh, yeah, networking for the sake of networking is a real waste of time. And and so are, you know, some of these social platforms that you're talking about. But if you go into them again with some some purpose, like even, even I imagine Twitter or, or Clubhouse, which I haven't spent all that much time on, I'm sure if you went into those with a real, uh, with a real purpose, you know, you could you could meet, ultimately help meet the right person through that. Right. Well, you know, I'm curious. You're still a super young guy. This is the first company you founded. Is this going to be the last company that you work for, you think? Or do you think that there's a lot more entrepreneurship waiting ahead for you? Or perhaps, you know, investing or, you know, you're a government major, perhaps running for office, right? What What, what does the future hold for Will? You know, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of, I would say a lot of the success that I've had to date has come from incredible focus. You know, I've kind of been maniacally focused about this one thing for like a decade. And that's in part how I've been able to get this far. And so my sense is that that's probably how I'm going to approach other things going forwards in my life. And, and I'm kind of all in until I'm not. And so, I'm, you know, I'm not someone who's going to be like starting a fund on the side and like, you know, advising 12 different companies and whatever, you know, I, I think that the biggest upside I'll have is from going all in on very specific things. And mind you, I recognize that's a somewhat contrarian point of view. Some people will say, you know, you should diversify your time and, and you should make a bunch of different bets in all these different places you know, I've done a little bit of angel investing when I see something that I think is cool or I want to support a young founder. Um, but, but otherwise, you know, I'm really just focused on woo. And And what does that look like in terms of like how, I mean, what is your ideal 
end game look like? Like, what is your vision long term for you and Whoop? And uh, like, how how does how does it all kind of sort of not end, but like but yeah. end up? Yeah, yeah. I think that the market for human performance and really health monitoring broadly is is pretty unlimited. And I think that as a result, Whoop can be a standalone business. And so I'm excited to keep growing Whoop privately. I think over time it'll be in the public markets. And that as an evolution is probably the thing that I feel like I sense is in my short-term future is, is learning how to take a company public, learning how to be a publicly traded company's CEO. I'm really excited about those as as challenges and and uh, potential opportunities. And on that note, do you have any worries like on the flip side at all of the future of like being able for every human being? Obviously it's a great thing, you know, we all want to know our health and make sure that we're all living as long as possible and as healthy as possible. Um but like these are things that traditionally have, you know, cre- have have created industries and like obviously the healthcare industry and like doctors and hospitals and all these things like like do you have any worries on like the flip side of every human being like being able to uh, have more of these things at their fingertips or like getting to a place like where perhaps like, you know, the health is not, I mean, it is a number one concern, but it's not a concern per se anymore. It's more like we're confident on where we're at at all times. And, and like, I mean, like it could be a worry or just like an, you know, optimistic viewpoint of it. But I'm just kind of curious, like on the flip side, like of having a lot of information, and like technology being more and more prevalent in our everyday lives. Like, do you have any, is there anything that keeps you up at night about that? Well, I think a lot more would keep me up about it if I didn't feel like I was uh, playing a big role in building it. You know, for example, you have to get privacy, right? So this doesn't end up some kind of dystopian future, but because we've been obsessed with privacy for like eight years, I know we're getting it right and that the end user is going to own their data and the product that you're paying for is being a member of whoop. It's not, um, you know, you're not the product. We're not selling you. So that would be like one example where I feel like if I weren't in control of it, I would have, I would have a lot of concerns about where the industry could go, but because I'm in control of at least that aspect of it, um, I'm quite optimistic and I think like the I think people really underestimate just how transformative wearable technology can be for society. I mean, it can truly change people's lives. Like it can really predict illnesses, diseases uh, before they happen. Uh, it can move a lot of curative costs to being preventative, which is massive, massive savings in in our incredibly broken healthcare system. Uh, so I think it could ju- it can also bring a level of like awareness and education. You know, a lot of the challenge for um, obesity is around education, and so I just I'm I'm overwhelmingly bullish on the potential of of health monitoring, and uh, and I'm excited for the future. Will you talk about you know being a public company CEO? What is that process going to look like for you guys? Is it going to be you know via SPAC via you know, some other sort of, you know, IPO direct listing. Have you guys already had conversations around that? You know, we'll follow, we'll follow a process. We'll identify the right time to do it. Um, 
it's it's one of those things where you don't you probably shouldn't just flip a switch and go from being private to public overnight, as you guys know. Uh, but I mean, you know, these days, who knows? I guess that's the SPAC market. It's it's been fascinating. I I, I get a SPAC email daily now. Um, in and it's about I don't know eighty to a hundred billion dollars that is chasing growth stage companies. I mean, I think that's about how much money was raised in SPAC. Right, because traditionally the mindset has been like, you know, you shouldn't just go from private to public overnight. But there are a lot of companies out there, and I'm not going to like point out any fingers because there's a lot of them that wouldn't be able to do go through the traditional IPO process if they were to do that. And like to, to go public from private to public overnight makes more sense for them because they can actually liquidate and make money or whatever it is. Um, so it's just, it's interesting like what's going on in that arena. But then again, you have a, a lot of companies that, I mean, just, you know, in a way it's like a positive thing for a lot of really good, healthy companies that could technically go through the traditional IPO process, but they'd be leaving more money on the table. Um, as we've seen recently with like some examples like DoorDash or Poshmark or some of these companies that, you know, opened up really low and then just, it just shot up and, you know, people lost money or at least the founders and business owners, stakeholders lost money. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting game, but, uh, it'll be interesting to see how it works out for you guys. Yeah, and to to manage expectations for people listening to this, like I'm not planning for Whoop to be public this year, but it's something that I can see, you know, on our horizons. Without, yeah, for sure. Yeah.